So what's uh, this hill? What's this so This is Craig Lockett Hill. It's um, it's about five minutes from from where we live, and it is, I think it's my place of solitude. <laughs> and I didn't even know it existed before lockdown. Um, we come up here as a family quite often, but whenever I teach, mm. I try and come up here every morning and uh, leave my phone and leave my wallet at home, and uh, just come up here and enjoy it, whether it's a Scottish summer or not, which is usually snowing. <laughs> but no, we come up here a lot. It's just a lovely place. What would you say right now to someone, a friend or family member, if they came to you and said that they felt life wasn't worth living? What if they'd chosen you as the person to speak to, to cry out for help from, how would you react? It's tough, isn't it? Right now, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. And I hope today we're gonna to start to learn the answer. For this episode of Speaking of Suicide, I'm in Edinburgh to meet and go for a walk with Christo Hudson. Christo is a former commercial pilot but when the pandemic took grip on our world and lockdowns became a way of life, like for so many of us, for Christo, life changed very suddenly. Today, he's a mental health first aid and suicide prevention trainer, and it's his story of going from the cockpit to the classroom that I think we can all learn from. I'm Dan Holland, and thank you for choosing to download this podcast. Now, as always, speaking of suicide comes with a gentle word of warning. Our intention is always to be open and honest about depression and mental health. But if that makes for a tough listen, remember, you can always press pause. Speaking of Suicide is made in support of and in collaboration with Mikey's Line, and I'll give you their details towards the end of the episode if you do need some support and want to reach out. Christo, we're going to talk about the black box approach in depth in a wee while, but the answers to those questions I asked a second ago, what would you say to someone who wanted help? Because I don't think there is an easy answer to that, is there? What should you do? I don't think it's ever easy, but it's about giving someone the time and space to actually listen to what's going on for them and someone that is having thoughts of suicide they don't have to make that decision now they don't have to make it tomorrow there is this other option that they can just stop and have a look around and and just get that that time that they need it doesn't have to happen now we always think that someone that is thinking of suicide that oh it's just they make a decision like that but it's not it's a long drawn out process there are so many factors that are involved i think the biggest thing that, that people are scared about when, when they talk to people about suicide is that if we ask them about it we're going to make them think about it and we're just not that powerful and i think when someone comes to you and says that and yes it might make you feel uncomfortable and they throw you this sort of red hot ball, but 
you just got to hold that ball. That's all you've got to do. And give them permission to talk about whatever is causing them that emotional pain. So we can put all that in context for how much you have learned about yourself and about life. Let's spool right back to the beginning. I said a second ago that you were a pilot. Did you always dream of being a pilot? Every young boy dreams of being a pilot. <laughs> the reason I laugh is because I genuinely always believed that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And here I am not doing that. And I think that's what I find to the point of ridiculous, that I was so driven. And when I was a little boy, I spent the whole, my, all of my spare time getting anything into the air, whether it was a kite, whether it was an aeroplane, whether it was a rocket. My parents telling me, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't, don't go flying a kite in this wind, it'll end up in the power lines. And it did end up in the power lines. And I was just determined, uh, even at school, when, when I said, you know, I don't really want to go to university, I'd like to just go and be a pilot. And, and the housemaster and my parents were all like, you know, you really should get a degree. So I kind of said, all right, we'll go and do that. And, went off to university uh, and ended up here in Edinburgh where we are today, 21 years later. Um, and whilst I was at university, that, that, that passion for flying just never went away. It was always there. And I ended up being uh, recruited by the Air Force as a pilot. And it was just the most amazing thing ever. I remember that the recruiter wrote on wrote on the back of my application form, it said, an old Etonian with old Etonian views, our system will either make or break him. And it was so poignant and it was so true because I went from being quite a shrinking violet to being absolutely driven and knowing exactly what I was going to do. And it was the Air Force that taught me that. An initial uh, flying training and, and was streamed fast jets so I genuinely believed that that this dream was going to come true and I was going to go and fly these fast jets <laughs> and very shortly into my career I was told that um, probably shouldn't be flying airplanes <laughs> flying fast jets so I, I distinctly remember standing in the shower in the officer's mess <laughs> wondering what on earth I was going to do with my life because all those dreams had just been <laughs> completely shattered but I was determined um, so I got rid of the fast car <laughs> and um, became a commercial pilot after a lot of financial worry and ended up at, at Flybe in the right hand seat of, a, of an airliner and it was just pure magic it was it was just the most wonderful job because of what I was doing but also the people I was doing it with and was that the buzz? Was it the people and the places you were travelling to? <laughs> no, no, it's, it, no the, the places are, as a pilot, we get this glamorously, you know, this glamorous lifestyle and you get 25 minutes on the ground to walk around the air, aircraft and sometimes you don't even get out of the aircraft. And it was just the fact that we all did it together. And people often ask me, you know, what was the responsibility like? It was just me going flying with a friend. Oh, what about all the passengers behind you? And I was like, well, as soon as that cockpit door closed, they were just 
part of the operation. There was never that feeling of sense of responsibility. It was just a day out and it was, it was brilliant. It sounds like the thrill was actually the freedom of taking off into the sky and you're in control of where you're going, doing what you love. Yeah, that was it. I think people often ask why, what I loved about it, and I think it was an element of escapism. When you advance the, the, the throttles at the end of the runway and you get clear for takeoff and you feel the engines roar, and that's it, you are strapped into this metal tube. Uh, and perhaps, yeah, perhaps you are absolutely in control of exactly what's going on at that, at that point. And when, when you, you get airborne and the wheels go up, you can't, you can't do anything about the stuff on the ground. There's, there's nothing you can do about that. And I think that's why. And the views, sometimes we were so delayed, you'd see a, suns, a sunrise in the morning and you'd see a, a sunset at the end of the day. But it didn't, it didn't, that didn't matter. And you'd always, even if the weather on the ground was horrific, you'd always break through the cloud at some point. And it was just, it was amazing. How long were you flying for? Did you always stay in the cockpit as a pilot or did you take on other roles? I was with Flybe for just coming up for 13 years. So I was a first officer and then became a captain. Captain sits in the left-hand seat and then quickly I progressed to become a training captain. So I was trying to share that those skills and that passion um, with new pilots, sometimes experienced pilots that were joining the company. And that became my new buzz. And yeah, it was tiring, but you'd, you'd work with these really positive young people that wanted to learn. They, they really wanted to, to get it. And I found that my role as a trainer, it wasn't it wasn't technical, my, the way I saw it. It wasn't me teaching someone about the ins and outs of, of, of the aircraft or air law, or, that wasn't me. But if there was someone that was struggling a bit uh, and perhaps didn't believe in their own ability or perhaps had a few bumps in the road, I kind of just took, to them, excuse the pun, took them under my wing to try and show them that they could do it and that life was gonna be all right. Um, and, and then, I got recruited into, into the safety department, the flight safety department. Uh, and my role there is what was called um, and flight data monitoring, FDM gatekeeper. And that, sounds ve <laughs> that sounds very, very dull. It, do it does, what, doesn't it? It but, does, but, you know, dealing with so data what every day. What, what were you doing? So uh, putting it into <laughs> less dull terms, is that I was, a, I was a black box investigator. Now, the aircraft records every movement from the moment that red light, the flashing red light on the belly of the aircraft goes on, from that moment until that light goes on, until that light goes off, the aircraft is recording everything. Sometimes things happen in aviation and incidents and accidents happen. And flight data and monitoring was a way for us to get a human view on that data and try and actually work out what was going on in the flight deck and I'd have to try and work out what was going on and these investigations were conversations and normally when someone from flight data monitoring from would phone up pilots would absolutely you know they were so lived in fear of it but it, it wasn't supposed to be like that it was 
let's try and help and try and see why these things are going on. And I found that by having conversations with people, that we found that they were actually human and we were being asked to operate the aircraft like machines and you just can't do that. And the role became trying to support people with whatever was going on in their lives. How much of an impact were the everyday stresses and strains that we all have in life influencing those behaviours that you were investigating? Were they influencing it? I think what I found out quite quickly was that when we went to work uh, and we were expected to operate these aircraft like machines, I quickly found out that it was just not possible because of all those things that were going on in people's lives. People hadn't slept, they perhaps had a newborn baby, perhaps they had financial worries, perhaps they had relationship worries, perhaps they were physically unwell. But when that cockpit door closed, that part of our lives was still in the, in the flight deck with us. You couldn't leave it outside. And that's why these things were happening, that, that people, were, people were human. And they just couldn't, you just can't. And that's kind of, people ask me why I, why I do what I do now. And looking back on it, the, I was always supposed to do this. I just, just didn't know it. And I think everything I was doing in that role, trying to support those people, um, kind of led me here. We'll talk in detail about what you're doing now because it's, it's why we're sitting here having this conversation today. To help us get there, what, what did you le learn? People obviously trusted you to talk to you, to open up to you. What were the keys that you learnt that helped people trust, have confidence in you, in being able to pour out some really, really personal things that might have a huge impact on their career, their life. What, what tools did you use? Because I think those are probably tools we could all use in everyday life. I think it was about helping people understand that we're all going to make mistakes, but there'll, there'll be a reason for it, that there's probably always something going on that leads us to carry out a behaviour. You know, I found out more formally having simps doing that role, that you know, the way we think affects the way we feel and the way we feel affects the way we behave. And I think in the flight deck that all those things that were going on outside the flight deck were manifesting themselves in work. And was that, as, was that as satisfying as sitting in those seats and flying the aircraft itself? Um, that's a tough question. I think the personal kickback, when you see someone actually being able to help themselves, perhaps because you've given them the tools to do it, and perhaps you've given them a different way of looking at a problem, I think, yeah, that beats flying. Tell me about the 5th of March, 2020. What do you remember of that day? It was a double Manchester rotation which was actually a really good shift because it wasn't too long. There was quite a lot of downtime on the ground, so you got more than 25 minutes to, to walk around the aircraft. So from Edinburgh to Manchester, to Manchester back to Edinburgh, yeah. back, back to Manchester, Manchester, and back, up, back to up. up. 
Uh, and normally we'd land at about 10 o'clock that evening. And I remember I was going to do a line check, so a final um, check on a, on a new, new first officer about whether he could join the company and actually fly the aircraft on his own under, without being under supervision. Um, and I remember checking in and I worked with the guy for a, a couple of weeks and he was actually a very experienced pilot uh, and he'd been made redundant a year beforehand uh, and he'd come to Flybe for, for a new challenge. And we flew down to Manchester and we came back up and the day seemed to be going swimmingly. And on the route back down to Manchester, just sort of overhead Carlisle, we heard this other aircraft, another Flybe aircraft, um, being told to, to divert back to where they'd come from. And there was this really eerie feeling about it. It was very rare that that would happen. And you could hear it in the pilot's voices. And I remember flying back in into Manchester and just having a really sense of unease, a real sense of unease about everything. Also, in my mind, is that I'm still the captain of this aircraft and we've still got passengers on board and I've still got a job to do. And there was just chaos. There was all these aircraft that shouldn't have been, all these flyby aircraft that shouldn't have been there. I remember the, the first officer, because he'd been through redundancy before, he said, it's over, isn't it? And, and I remember trying to stay really calm. No, no, no it's fine, it's fine. And Flybe had gone bust. Fly had, Flybe had gone into administration. What did that mean for you, right there, right then? What went through your head? To be brutally honest, I just soldiered on. I, I, I was still convinced that this wasn't... No, I was still convinced we were just continuing with our day and there was a mistake. You were made redundant that evening, that yeah, day? Yeah, that was it. That was that, that night. And then the rest is a a spiral. Everything around you just starts closing in and I felt nothing really. I was still convinced that the next day was going to be another day and I'd get on my uniform and I'd go to work and I'd have a disgusting cup of coffee and, and go through that hole and it, and it just didn't and I just complete and utter denial. I read in your blog on the, the Black box approach website you describe redundancy like a divorce you didn't want how talk me through how you reacted in those days weeks and months that followed because you've already said you were someone who liked control and control had been taken from you how did you react it was like it's like unrequited love so convinced that I was going back to do that, that job and this was just a mistake. Um, we just had our, our fourth child <laughs> and uh, the stresses and strains of, of that coupled with this complete, I feel like I've been completely abandoned by someone that didn't love me at all and just numb, denial and then angry I just felt so lost um, so I stopped caring really 
are stopped. This is three weeks before the, the pandemic hit and the, the first lockdown. So we got no furlough. Um, we tried to fight for furlough, we didn't get it. Redundancy payments came eventually, but with four children and no financial backup, it was, it was very, very stressful. It was, it was really, really tough. So I, I stopped looking after myself. Um, I grew <laughs> a really dodgy beard um, and I started using alcohol as a coping mechanism. Not during the day, but I still felt that responsibility f for my family. But I would just drink to, to escape whatever was going on. Um, and my redundancy baths, I, I talk, talk about where I would eat dinner with my wife, put the children to bed and just drink and sit in the bath. And I'd, I'd wake up, well, sometimes I fell asleep in the bath, but I'd, I'd wake up at two o'clock in the morning in, in this cold water, having cried a lot probably, and just lost complete direction. It sounds like you went through, from what you've described, some of the very clear stages of grief. You were grieving for your career. I, I look back on it as, as, as exactly that. It was those, those stages, the denial, the anger, and then finally this acceptance and then this looking for hope. And, and, I, and I, I do remember just thinking, actually, this is going to be all right. And I might never, ever fly again, but life's, life's going to be all right. There were lots of people that were looking out for me, lots of people that genuinely cared. And, you know, my, my wife, through it all, was just amazing. I think that's sometimes a really hard thing to remember, isn't it? when you are feeling as lost as you've described, is remembering that there is always somebody looking out for you. There is always someone who's got your back, isn't there? But in the moment, that can feel impossible. It's like, it's like you don't know which way to turn at all. But I always remember my dad. I say it like he's dead, he's not, he's still around. <laughs> I love him dearly, but he always taught me that when you really feel like there's nowhere to turn, all you've got to do is put one foot in front of the other. It's all you've got to do. It doesn't, doesn't matter which direction you go. And I think that's part of, of how I climbed out of that, that really dark hole. <laughs> just finding that you just put one foot in front of the other. It doesn't matter which direction. So I started helping other people because there were people out there in the same situation. There were 17,000 unemployed pilots, let alone numbers of cabin crew. Started speaking to people and I found that by helping them, I was helping myself. Um, and it sounds selfish, but, but it, it, it really helped me because I knew I was having a really positive effect on those people. And sometimes people just wanted to just talk at me. And I just took the time to listen.
and that's kind of how I find how I found out what I wanted to do and I just wanted just want to help people when they're really struggling let's just pause let's just pause for a sec are you alright? yeah I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine if you want someone to talk to or are worried about a friend or a family member who needs help then you can text Mikey's line on 07786 207755 or contact them via messenger web chat or Twitter. They're available Sunday to Thursday, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., Friday to Saturday, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. You right, Christian? Yeah, I'm good. Yep. <laughs> We're standing in Edinburgh's Craig Lockett Park. We're overlooking the western side of the city, and while we've been standing here talking, I've been hearing the odd aircraft <laughs> come in overhead. And we've talked an awful lot about the cockpit. Let's have this as our last thing because I want to talk about what you do now. But I think, I think that phrase that you use as you taxi down the runway as I'm sitting in the back, when you lift the nose of the aircraft up off the runway is to rotate. You started smiling. So tell me about how you started to rotate life again. I am... Um... I wrote myself a letter, and it sounded ridiculous, but um, I have a, a mentor, a friend, and he said, write a letter to yourself. Ask yourself, what do you really want from life? Keep asking yourself, why, why, why? And the letter was to be opened in a year's time, and it, it wasn't about financial gain. It was, what did I want to achieve in life? And I wrote that letter and that was my first step forward. That was the first step I took. And I found that perhaps I did have a bit of a skill of helping people and perhaps I could use that in a more formal way. Um, so I trained as a, as a peer support volunteer, supporting pilots in particular who were really struggling um, with what was going on in the pandemic and just them going through the same motions as, as me and just speaking to people about what was going on in their lives and I did a mental health first aid course never heard anything about it but it, it gave me permission to actually talk about what was going on for myself and and I trained in suicide first aid I did this course about how to have a conversation with someone that's thinking of ending their own life. And it just clicked. There was something about it. I think with my own personal lived experience of poor mental health and my training background, it just clicked. And I could actually give other people these tools of how to listen, how to have a kind, caring conversation, and actually hear the emotional pain that someone might be going through. So, so I, I did that, and January uh, the eighth, twenty twenty-one, I, I launched. I say business in the loosest sense of the word, but this organisation—it is just me sitting in my bedroom, stroke office. But I teach these courses, 
not so people can always help other people, but so they can help themselves as well. So they can spot the signs that perhaps things aren't right. These, what we call absences of normality, the fact that they grow a dodgy beard or the fact that they want to just go and wallow in the bath for hours or the fact that they want to drink to, to numb the pain of what's going on for them. And these courses genuinely change people's lives. It gives them permission to talk with other people about things they've noticed or perhaps that relationship they have with themselves to perhaps give them the permission to be actually honest. You know, there's so much stigma that surrounds mental health that the society, social stigma, but also the self-stigma when, when someone doesn't want to admit to themselves what's actually really going on for them. But the biggest kick I get out of it is when I know that someone has really been helped. And whenever I deliver a course, I say to everyone, you know, one of you in, 48, in the next 48 hours will email me or phone me or text me saying they've had the courage to have a conversation with someone that they've been worried about. And that's what it is. It's about having that confidence. It's not ever about, I don't think you can ever be comfortable with talking about, about mental health and mental illness, but you'd be confident about it. And if you can do that, it just breaks that stigma just a little bit. And that's what I'm trying to do. I think it takes great strength, physical and mental, to go from where it sounds like you were to where you were when you started the black box approach. And there's no, the name is there, it's the analyst in you, it's the dissecting the information to get to the root of the problem. But you sound like you went from one extreme of needing to pick yourself up to the other extreme to have having regained that self-confidence to help other people. Were there milestones along the way? Were there, what were the steps that you went through? I, I think there was a, a, one of the biggest things I had to, was actually acceptance that perhaps I wasn't that pillar of strength or I'd lost it. I'd lost it temporarily and I'd, I'd lost my way. Um, and I don't know if there were specific milestones, but I think the thing I found most difficult was that I was always in control, always in control. And when I got made redundant, there was no rule book. And I was trying to write that rule book. And that's why I laugh about it now. You know, Goodness, if you'd asked me what I'd be doing now, I absolutely no way. But looking back on it, I know I was always supposed to do this, I just, just didn't know it. It took me a 21 year professional career in aviation to do what I do now. When people come on your courses, what is their biggest fear about opening up a conversation with a friend or a loved one that they're worried about? And be that that they've noticed a change in their mental health or that they're worried that they're having suicidal thoughts? There are two, always two concerns that people bring to me. One is that they don't want to make the situation worse. And because of that, they don't ask. 
they think that by asking someone about suicide that they might make them think about it if they weren't. And we just know from research, it's just not true. We're not that powerful. I wish I was powerful enough to say to you, Dan, oh, um, will you give me a salary for the next year? No one in their right, no one's gonna do that. And by talking to someone about suicide, you, you can't make them think about it. All you can do is ease their pain by giving them permission to talk about it. And when you ask someone confidently, clearly and directly, we don't use humour, we don't, we don't use guilt, you can see in their eyes, in their body language, in their whole demeanour, what a relief that might be that someone's actually asked them. So that people are worried that if they ask, they're going to make someone think about it. And they're also worried about the reaction. What if they do say yes? Uh, and when people ask me that, my response is always the same. as like, yes, it might feel uncomfortable when someone says yes to you. And you might have to, we talk about this red hot ball that someone's just thrown you when they say yes. But you haven't got to hold that ball forever. There are some amazing supporters out there that help you hold that ball and yes it might be uncomfortable and as crude as this sounds it's not about you it's, it's about them and by you taking that red hot ball off them that can change their lives we mentioned tools of being able to it help people open up earlier on I think listening is a really fundamental thing that we could all do so much more of in life. Listen to others, listen to ourselves. What other tools are there? Because it's a, if somebody hands you that red hot ball you've described and you're not expecting it, that really, really is a red hot ball, isn't it? What, you're absolutely... how, how do you react? What do you, in the instant? Uh, and let's not, let's not sugarcoat it or lie. When someone gives you that red hot ball, it can be shocking and can be uncomfortable, especially if it's someone you know and love, because you'd never want anyone to ever feel like that. You just have to be in the moment. We talk about active listening, and it is just about being there and giving them the time and space to just talk, to just tell you what is causing them that emotional distress. We, we know, you know that people don't, people thinking of suicide don't want to die, they just want the pain to stop. So you taking that red hot ball is taking away some of that pain, it's taking away that perhaps physical, perhaps emotional distress. It's, it's taking away some of that burden from them. And it can just be being there, just listening, not feeling like you have to give advice or information or answers and not leading it with questions. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? It's just about being there and letting that person talk. Sometimes they, they won't want to, but if you've asked someone clearly and directly about suicide and they say no 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 what are, you, what are you talking about you've given them permission 
And if they ever do feel like that, and we know it is so common, one in 20 of us are having thoughts of suicide at one time, we know that because you've already given that person permission, if they ever feel like that, you're the first person they're going to come to. It's just about giving someone time and space. You said earlier on that your wife was a huge support for you. Have you spoken to her now about how she supported you then? Did she have these skills that you teach (laughs) when you needed the help? Because I wonder how she might have supported you if she had the knowledge you're teaching now. (laughs) I, I, I think she just naturally, she's, I've always said this, but we've been together for a long time and she's the only person that could ever really get me. Um, you know, when I'm full of energy and I'm, I'm on a push to, you know, achieve something and I'm really a go-getter and then sometimes, you know, I'm a little bit low and not feeling all right with what I'm doing. She's the only person that's ever been able to level me and she, I don't think, she's never learnt those skills. They've just come naturally to her. Um, and when I have a harebrained idea, she'll she'll put me through my paces and say, you know, you sh- have you thought about this and have you thought about that? That's probably why we work well together. I'm the the one with the vision, and she's the one with the detail, and I think that's that's why we work. It sounds like a perfect partnership, <laughs> to be honest. But when I've spoken to people before about their mental health, they can tell when they're in a good state or if they know they're heading to a, a darker place. Can you feel ebbs and flows in your mental health now? And if so, how do you control it? What do you say to yourself now <laughs> that you weren't able to say to yourself before? These are things I've learned from other people. And I think I, could, I was quite um, easily able to self-regulate my emotions. <laughs> despite what's happening today but there are so many tools that you can use when you find your your mind rolling down that hill you can hear the cogs working you can feel your heart beating in your chest there are tools that everyone can use to stop that and we talk about catastrophizing thinking the worst of every single situation and then when we can realize that they are just thoughts there's no real fact attached to them one of them is is that we shout stop or you put on your Alan Partridge voice and go, catastrophic thinking is one that, one that I teach. When you find yourself doing that at two o'clock in the morning and you put on a ridiculous voice and you say the word out loud because it makes that thought seem actually ridiculous and then you take a breath and you say to yourself, what, what facts do I have for this thought? Is it, it's just a thought. And I find when I am doing that and I, I am finding I'm stressing about getting people on courses or whether there's enough loo paper for the children or enough nappies or whatever it is I just stop and take a breath and it sounds ridiculous but it really really helps just in through the nose and out through the mouth and then observe what facts do I actually have for this this unhelpful thought when I've rationalized it and go okay 
Is there any point stressing about it? Can I control it? Can I influence it? Or do I just have to accept it? And then I move on. But at the moment, ever since, ever since the redundancy, I'm a much more able to spot those signs within myself. Um, and I notice it. I notice perhaps when, perhaps when I, I'm using alcohol as a coping mechanism and I don't, don't want to go back to doing that. And I can, I can regulate that now. Um, I, I've also found one of the tools is by speaking about it. It really helps. It helps me, but it helps other people. Because they can go, oh, well, actually, I thought he had, I thought Krista had it all together. And actually, he lost his way a little bit. And it's all right to do that. Even people that are seen as pillars of strength have their, have their weaknesses. And I think by talking about it, it gives other people permission as well. And it's perhaps about being a little kinder to ourselves as well. Yeah, and sometimes it's, it's tough. That's something I'm still having to learn. I keep using the word should a lot. I should do this or I should be doing that. Should I? Or just keep doing what I'm doing. Christo, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for sharing your story with us on Speaking of Suicide. If you want to find out more about Christo and the black box approach, then there's a link in the episode notes wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder of Mikey's line, if you or someone you know needs help or advice, you can text them on 07786 207755 or contact them via Messenger, web chat or Twitter, Sunday to Thursday, 6pm to 10pm or Friday to Saturday, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Now here's Shona McPherson from Mikey's Line with a few thoughts for you to mull over. Yeah, what an honest conversation between Christo and Dan. And I think the thing that has struck me from that conversation is thinking about risk factors and protective factors. And on the face of it, Christo's well-educated professional pilot, and um, we wouldn't sort of automatically, apart from being male and his age, doesn't necessarily fit within a category of major risk factor for suicide. But then this incredibly stressful life event for him of um, becoming being made redundant from this job that he says himself was his identity, um, that he just, his world crumbled around him. And he so vividly, for me, described how difficult that was and the signs that he saw himself um, or sees with hindsight that things weren't right, drinking to escape, not looking after himself, falling asleep in the bath with a, with the bottle of wine. So honest of him to, to share that in, in that way. And if we think of risk factors and protective factors, um, sounds like he was, Crystal was having a horrible time with depression and the protective factor possibly that stopped out getting worse for him or putting him more at risk for suicide was his relationship with his wife and the support that he had from her. He had someone to speak to that he was able to and who understood and um, was able to help him. And I guess then if we're listening to this and maybe we recognise some of those behaviours in ourselves, maybe we've had a stressful life event like a 
redundancy or a loss, a relationship breakdown, and maybe we're beginning to notice that we're not looking after ourselves in the same way or drinking more than we would like to or having redundancy baths, as Krista called them. And if we don't have um, that protective factor of people around us, then we are at risk. We need to reach out and um, get help from somebody. And if we don't feel we've got somebody, that's when it is really important that we um, turn to professional organisations, we talk to our GP, and as always, Mikey's line is here for you every night. So please don't be alone with these difficult thoughts and feelings and behaviours, but rather please get in touch with us. Huge thanks to Shona and all the team at Mikey's Line for the work they do. The podcast platform is supported by D&D Paving Limited. Please do like, share and comment about the podcast. And if you want to get involved by sponsoring an episode or telling your story, you can get in touch with Mikey's Line. Speaking of Suicide is an adventurous audio production and the music is Nana by Tom Ireland. <laughs>